Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast presented by OnX Hunt. We are so excited to be here for another week's episode. If this happens to be your first time joining us on the podcast, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. We try our hardest to put out episodes and content that are engaging, that are interesting, that gives you information that's not only entertaining, but can also help you in the field, help you out while you're out hunting. We are trying our best to serve sportsmen and women across all walks of life. Before we get too much into the show, if you have a minute, Please take the time to go to our page on Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave us a rating. Also on Apple Podcast, if you could take the time to write a review, I don't care if you write two words or four paragraphs, it helps the show tremendously if you do so. So I know since we've started making episodes again, uh, not too long back, we started asking folks to do that. And I saw the new comments and the new um, the numbers on the ratings going up. I can't express to y'all how much I appreciate you doing that because I'm not lying. It helps the show so, so much. It helps more people find us, so on and so forth. So if you're enjoying the show, please do that. And hey, share the podcast with somebody. It helps us tremendously. Now, let's talk about whitetails for a second. It is midway through October at this point. There's already been a pile of success photos posted on social media, sad stories told about spooking deer or missing deer. People are out in the about in the deer woods constantly chasing whitetails, as you should be. But we haven't even made it to the best time of year yet. And obviously, I'm talking about the rut. And so I want to direct you to checking out Onyx Hunt's 2022 rut predictions blog. And I know what some of you are thinking. We get some comments when I bring this up like, man, I know when the rut is in my neck in the woods. I kind of have a, you know, a normal um, plan or rut hunting strategy that I normally go about. I don't really need any help there. I would argue that this is worth taking a look at anyway. This is a very in-depth look um, using whitetail science, biology, regions, and hunting experience. We polled over a dozen of our own Onyx Hunt ambassadors. Folks like Aaron Warbritton, the guys from Heartland Bowhunter, Mark Kenyon, guys that spend a whole lot of time hunting whitetails. And we get info from them just on like how to dial in specific days, strategies, so on and so forth. So. Even if you don't think you need any help, this is still worth a look. I promise you it could help you out. It could also give you some ideas to get creative and kind of get out of your comfort zone um, as we tend to do sometimes and getting in, you know, kind of a rut or a same rhythm of doing the same hunting tactics year after year after year. So check that out, onyxmaps.com, the 2022 rut predictions blog. Now for our next topic, and in the name of providing y'all with information that is useful to you, I want to get in the habit of calling out different state wildlife agencies that are doing good things and also offering unique opportunities to you. So two things we've talked about a whole ton on this podcast are both prescribed fire and trapping. So let's go with trapping first. The Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources is offering a series of trapping education workshops during select weekends this fall and winter. The workshops provide instruction on historical aspects of trapping, biology of fur bearers, and how to use trapping as a sound wildlife management tool. This is the cool part to me. The workshops are open to anyone ages seven and up, and it's a $10 registration fee. So virtually anyone can come and it's 10 bucks. I love this. I love that they are offering this. Big round of applause to the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. For more information, visit OutdoorAlabama.com slash trapping. I love this. 
Now, this next call out takes place in my home state of Mississippi, which I'd be lying if I said I wasn't proud of. The Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, along with the Mississippi Forestry Commission and several other partners, will be hosting a prescribed fire workshop that is set for Grenada County. This is going to be done with the mindset to educate landowners about prescribed fire. It's going to take place at Camp McCain, which is a training center for the Mississippi Army National Guard located approximately uh, 10 miles west of Grenada. Topics covered during this workshop include safe and effective use of prescribed fire, fire ecology and wildlife habitat, legal issues related to prescribed burning in Mississippi, weather permitting, participants will be given the chance to assist in a prescribed burn demonstration. This is the cool part. Registration is five bucks. Five bucks. This includes materials, lunch, and so on and so forth. So if you want to learn more about that, visit the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks website and check it out. Again, this is an awesome thing. I think both of these, both done by um, the uh, Alabama's Department of Wildlife and Mississippi's, uh, I picked out these two this week because I know um, we have listeners from all over, but a core of our listener base comes from the southeast, and these are close to home. However, I think this is something that we should continue to do and really bring to light these opportunities that are out there for not only to highlight uh, wildlife agencies that are doing a tremendous job, but to give you all the opportunity to take advantage of some of these awesome opportunities. Because like I said, we get um, questions about trapping and burning all of the time and so when you have these awesome opportunities i think the alabama one was like seven bucks to register for the mississippi one's five dollars these are cheap and these are easy so guys take advantage of them and then last call out again if you know of opportunities like this happening in your area it doesn't matter what state it's in it doesn't got to be southeast but if you know of more stuff like this going on if you know of other wildlife agencies that are doing awesome things if you are a part of a wildlife agency and you want to point out something like this inbox us you can email primos hunting podcast at gmail.com uh, you can message me directly uh, at lake pickle on instagram or the primos hunting page reach out to us and we'll get the information out there so I want to get to today's main topic of discussion, but to do that correctly, it's going to take a little bit of a setup to do it justice. If you remember in last week's episode with Brad, I made a singular comment about us planning to do an in-depth episode series about quail in the Southeast. And believe me, we are doing that. We're, we're even beyond the planning point. We're actively building that series. However, some of the feedback we got and some of the research I've done led me to the conclusion that although quail is still a highly valued and highly regarded game bird, it just simply doesn't get the press or the shine these days that whitetail hunting, turkey hunting, waterfowl hunting gets, dove hunting even, just because it's not as prevalent of a species as it once was. And we'll get into that in more detail. But before releasing this entire series, I thought it would do us all best to release a preliminary episode, a preliminary conversation, if you will. So I spoke with a man by the name of Dr. Craig Harper. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. Craig Harper, you can look him up. He is one of the most knowledgeable wildlife biologists around right now. He knows his stuff, not just on bobwhite quail, but on habitats, on whitetails, on turkeys, and so many other things. Plus, an added bonus, he speaks with a conviction of a tent revival pastor, so it makes him extremely easy to listen to. So 
Enjoy this conversation. Think about it. Let it begin to pique your interest on Bob White quail and the implications beyond just this singular species. Believe me, we are working on this episode series, and I think you're really going to like it when it comes out. But until then, here's the conversation. My, my I guess, initial interest in quail, I remember these, these old conversations my grandfather and his brothers would be standing around his old Dodge pickup and they'd be telling these stories about how good the quail hunting used to be in Mississippi where we grew up. And some of them still had old bird dogs. They hadn't been hunted in years, but they had, they still, it was just like just these lingering pieces of what used to be. It's interesting to sit and listen to you because although, let's say you're what, 31? 30. 30. I'm 25 years older than you are. I'm 55. Mm -hmm. But listening to you, you just told the exact same story that I have. <laughs> the, the difference is you grew up in an area that likely was about as rural still as the area in which I grew up in the late 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And so the area where I grew up in the Piedmont of North Carolina developed, you know, with a human population right. 25 years before the area where you grew up probably is seeing development or some other broad scale landscape change. Mm -hmm. So this discussion has been going on for at least 30 years longer in some areas about you know what is happening or what happened to the quail to me it's quite simple it is quite simple the human population has grown and not allowed habitat to be sustained for bobwhite mm -hmm. bobwhite is a species that require open landscapes and where you grew up and where I grew up and all across the, let's say, especially the, the Southeast for mm -hmm. sure, the human population has expanded and many areas that were open are no longer open. They're now forested, especially uh, in, in the, the relative deep South where so many pines have been planted in the past 30 to 40 years. So much what was open ground now is closed canopy pine or intensively managed pine on, on you know, short rotations. And so the, uh, the land ownership has gone down drastically. I think now, don't hold me to this, but the average land ownership in Tennessee is somewhere around 12 acres, something like that. Uh, and when you think of the management that is needed for quail, who, who's going to, who's going to do that? When, when most people figure out what they need to do to actually manage habitat for Bob White, they, they don't do it. it it's too much work. Now it used to be the process of somebody just making a living off of their land was that work. And so quail, you know, obviously a byproduct of you know small scale farming or even large scale farming that didn't disrupt the entire fields from property line to property line or 
the road plumbed to the woods or, or what have you as large a fields and double or triple cropped as, as many of them are today. The, the land use practices and the landscape in general has changed so dramatically over the past 40 years that it has essentially removed quail habitat from large portions of the landscape. And so now you might have what is considered excellent quail habitat, but it might only be 300 acres or more mm -hmm. often 70 acres or for many people, 17 acres. And they're trying to work with a state wildlife agency biologist or NRCS or whoever and implement all of these practices, all of which is good, but they simply are in a landscape now that will not allow the bobwhite population to respond. And so, you know, when I tell folks, you know, when folks ask me, you know, what can I do for, for bobwhite on my property? The first thing you do is scale up and look at it from, you know, the 30,000 foot view, literally, and see what, what landscape are you in? You know, because if there are not existing bobwhite populations around you, and, you know, the, this is a, you know, take this number with a grain of salt, so to speak, but if you're not in an area that is largely open and at least 1,500 acres, you're probably not going to be able to sustain a bobwhite population on your property. Now, your property might be only 80 acres and you do a great job of managing quail and you have quail on the property, but your small, relatively small 80 acres is in a landscape mm -hmm. that supports bobwhite. And so that's why so many of the conservation efforts today are focusing on relatively open landscapes in you know, regions of a state, for example, that still largely are uh, driven by agriculture. And so then they can implement various practices such as field borders and hedgerows and you know, all the, the typical stuff that's done. And that create additional usable space for bobwhite, both for their nesting, brood rearing, and, and escape. And, and you can have, you know, huntable populations on those properties. But, but overall, you know, across this, you know, southeast wide uh, range of, of bobwhite, the, the landscape overall simply is not permitting it anymore. They're, they're not a woods bird. They're a bird of, of open landscapes. And, you know, I'm sure some, somebody uh, will think, well, you know, well, uh, quail live in pines. What's, what's wrong with the pines? Well, the pines are not managed in such a form on most properties, such mm -hmm. that the birds have adequate ground cover underneath. And so there's, there's a lot of work that's been done on this, but when you get past about 40% coverage of trees, that is 60% open, mm. the vegetation community under those pines begins to change so much that the, the, the stand, the area there is, is not as usable. And then when you compound on top of that, the management that is oftentimes done in those pines, which on many even quote quail plantations, you know, it's, it's annual or biannual burning. And the vast majority of it is, is done in uh, late February and, and March, mm -hmm. you know, especially right after the quail season, which most of it is done in March. And you do that chronically over time 
you you drive it to a sea of grass. You got scattered pine trees and nothing but grass hardly underneath. And so that is an artificial uh, vegetation community that artificial as to what it would be historically okay. if, if fire okay. if fire was allowed to uh, creep through the area at different times of the year. And so using, uh, you know, a different fire regime, not that burning in March is bad, but don't just burn in March, switch up your burning. You don't have to have this annual or biannual fire on, on all areas. You know, soils and moisture regime, of course, dictate a lot of that. But, but think about leaving those areas that are shrubby and brushy and provide escape because the Bob White is a shrub obligate bird. Uh, they may use areas that have a lot of grass, of course, but they don't have to have grass for anything, whether it be nesting or seed or whatever. You know, the, the forb component is what's so important for the brood cover and the seed production. And then, of course, the woody cover from shrubs and, and other, you know, low growing woody species or young sprouting trees, et cetera. That's what's so critical for, for escape. And then most of their locations will be within just a few yards, you know, 30 to 50 yards of, uh, you know, decent shrubby woody cover. And mm. then that's not present on, on many of these properties where they're hoping to have more birds. Mm. That... What some of you said there that that leads me to a, another question. Um, a man that I know you know because I've had him on the podcast before, Dr. Marcus Lashley, and he's mentioned at you. Um, I had Marcus on here talking about prescribed fire. Shocker, right? I mean, the Marcus does love talking about fire. But one thing that was interesting is he was one thing that he was really um, emphasizing on was kind of something that you touched on. Like it's not bad. It's definitely not a bad thing to, you know, do your prescribed burning, you know, right before turkey season. A lot of people want that magnet effect. Um, but he really emphasized on burning throughout the year like you did. And he touched on, you know, we were mainly talking about turkeys in that podcast. But he touched on how, you know, one of one of the things that I learned when I was in wildlife school at Mississippi State, one of my ecology teachers taught me, he's like, you can never just do one thing, you know. And so he started talking about the benefits of these burns throughout the year and quail came up in the conversation. And so that's one of the other things that, you know, talking about doing this quail centric podcast, I was like, you know, I was asking some folks about it and I said, man, you may have, you may lose some folks if you focus just on quail because there's so many guys that, you know, all they're, all they're concerned about is whitetails or so on and so forth, or they're afraid if they put emphasis on this, they'll, you know, maybe lose ground on, their turkeys or their deer or whatever. And what I've gathered is it seems like you end up with more, it's more of a mosaic, you know, I mean, as far as if you do this thing good for quail, it pays off dividends for turkeys and deer and all these other things that you could be supporting on your property or, or the habitat you're trying to work with. Well, if you diversify your management mm -hmm. such that you have a diversity of uh, plants and plant communities on your property, then by default, you have enabled uh, a diversity of foods. Different plants provide different types of foods, whether it be seed, whether it be forage, whether it be insects, etc., that are tied to those plants over a broader period of the year than if you just manage in one way and mm -hmm. you tend to have fewer types of plants available. So 
yes, that also benefits deer and turkeys. I, I'm not saying that, I mean, to, to say that quail management helps everything is, is incorrect. To say mm -hmm. that quail management is what you should do for deer and turkeys, I, I would argue that's, that's incorrect. If yeah. I'm setting up a property specifically for managing deer, specifically for managing turkeys, or specifically for managing uh, bobwhite, they're going to be different. There's going to be nuances there that are different with regard to woody cover, disturbance regime, when disturbance is, is applied, etc. But mm -hmm. absolutely, if, if you manage for quail, you are going to do some good things that uh, turkeys and deer definitely will, will benefit from. Mm -hmm. And that's so and we talked about that because one of the things that I was talking with Marcus about and there's there's probably a lot of things you can attribute it to. But it's like in the past probably two or three years, I feel like I'm seeing more I'm seeing and hearing of more folks engaging in prescribed fire. And I have couple of friends neither of them wanted me I mean I don't think they wanted me to share who they were on this podcast but they both have properties and they've been burning and they are I mean they're not seeing you know just massive you know just lots of cubbies of quail but they're seeing cubbies of quail show up on their property that they didn't have in the past and what they're engaging in is not they're, they're like they're, they're moving away from just one prescribed burn on this block of pines a week before turkey season. I mean, they, they've these are guys that I know that I know they're burning in the fall. They're burning and they're burning all throughout the year whenever they have good burning days. And the, you know, I talked to one guy last week, and he said I can probably at any given point go find two cubbies of quail. And I'm like, that's amazing to someone like me. I was telling him like uh, last spring I was turkey hunting. And I kicked up a single quail and I sat there and watched him. And I don't think I even tried to hunt a turkey the rest of the morning. All I could think about was that one quail I kicked up because it made me so happy. <laughs> so I thought that was, was pretty cool just off of that switch in his burning regime. He's seeing some quail, you know, seeing some response. And switching up your timing of burning is one thing, but something else that, that Marcus probably mentioned that I know he has talked about and, and worked with uh, a lot is your scale of burning. And so, for example, I may be talking to, you know, a group of, of deer hunters and talking about the benefits of fire and fire at different times, et cetera. And, you know, I've heard folks express well you know I, I can't i can't burn all of my woods and and my response is why would you want to and they say well how much area do you have to burn that's a good question and i asked so what's the smallest food plot that you've ever planted and killed a deer over and you know they'll say you know a quarter of an acre mm -hmm. eighth of an acre you know, whatever the case may be and i said well what's wrong with going out there with a backpack blower and blowing a fire break around an eighth of an acre, a quarter of an acre, two acres, five acres, whatever it may be, and burn those small patches. And then move those small patches of where you're burning across your property over time. So mm -hmm. why wouldn't you burn one in March and then you burn another one in June or July, you burn another one in August or September. And so you're having fresh vegetation and different structure coming up 
at different times throughout your property. And for example, with, with deer, that fresh vegetation is so important and, and they will flock to that like a magnet with that fresh uh, flush of vegetation. Mm-hmm. And then if you're doing that in open areas, even if you're burning, for example, in small areas, may only be an acre or two in, in open areas, you know, old fields and, and that type of, of plant communities. And, and let's say you might have some invasive uh, undesirable plants and you do a little spot spray and then you kill those. And once that all dies, you go back and you burn those little patches where everything else in the field is green as a gourd. And so you don't even need a fire break around that depending on conditions in which you're burning, of course. And so then you've got these little burn patches after it rains a couple of times, they green back up and you'll see the quail broods going into those Mm. in in July and August because of the open structure under a plant canopy that hopefully is dominated by forbs and not thick grass. And, And so you're having a mosaic of structure within your open areas that quail can use for different things. Uh, you know, they can use the perennial vegetation for nesting. They can move into these little small patches of burned areas later uh, for brooding and then have uh, patches of, of, or you know, hedgerows, patches, whatever you want to call it, just scattered about in, in the area of, of woody cover that they can use for, for escape. And, and also, which is very important that a lot of people don't think about, is the, the summer uh, refuge, you know, with the shade because it's so hot in the middle of, of open fields, uh, quail can't stand to be out there in the middle of, you know, broad open sunlight when it's 96 degrees, you right. know, they got to have a little shade for comfort, just like, just like we do. And so, you know, getting that thought into the minds of people that, oh, I actually want some incoming shrubs or trees in the field, you know, traditionally, what does everybody think? Oh my gosh, that's about to get away from me. I better get that mowed down or, you know, do whatever. And, and yeah. you know, ironically it's dripping with irony they're interested in quail but yet they're going out there on a tractor with a bush hog in the middle of the peak nesting season in june and july and and mowing it all down i mean it's you 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 can't make that up it's 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 just you know incorrect management Mm -hmm. but it's obviously not intentional but but people you know a lot of people don't realize but i think it it comes to like like what you're saying i think it's a it's it's a, a like a, a way of thinking that quail has not I, I feel like at least the the circles that I've been around quail has not been an emphasis or a focal point down here in so long that people just don't think about it because I would love to say that if I saw somebody doing what you're doing bush hogging during that nesting season I'd be like oh man you shouldn't do that before doing you know before I got this interest in quail and started doing some digging around on my own. I probably would think nothing of it just because we we've been it's been out of quail have been out of our out of our mind for so long we just don't think about them anymore and it's like I said I, I know this is I mean it's of deeply personal interest to me because of you know I've been able to hunt quail and then um just the roots that tie back to my grandfather hunting quail they just mean something to me but it, it's 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 wild to me to see I, I see on a like a not a big spark, but a small spark of folks starting to pay attention to quail again. And so that way it's exciting, but that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast, just to bring some of this stuff, what we can do 
back into the light to maybe change folks' line of thinking maybe a little bit. I don't know if it can, how much it can move the needle, but maybe a little bit. I'm going to have to cut the conversation right there, unfortunately, but don't you worry. This will not be the last that we hear from Dr. Craig Harper, and it certainly won't be the last that we hear about Bob White Quail. My hope in all of this is that this episode served a unique purpose in piquing your interest had you not already spent a lot of time thinking about Bob White Quail. I think you're really going to enjoy this full-length series when we get through building it and come out with it. If you haven't already caught on, the story that we're telling goes far beyond the singular effects on one singular species. There's a lot bigger story to be told here. But until then, we're going to sign off. As always, if you have any questions, if there's any topics you want covered, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We can be reached very easily. Email us at primoshuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Message me directly at Lake Pickle on Instagram. As far as I know, I'm still the only Lake Pickle floating around out there. I'm not that hard to find. Until then, thank you as always for listening to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt.